All right. Good morning, brothers and sisters. We're in uh, Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to be starting around verse 17. I kind of want to recap a little bit, uh, moving into that. So as we come to this last portion of Philippians 3, we're in the middle of Paul's discussion of salvation and the danger that exists from people who would try to lead us astray from it. His beware of the dogs warning in verse 2 of chapter 3 really starts the ball rolling on this uh, very critical issue that every human being has to grapple with, which is, how do we get right with God? How do we get right with God? Do we need to get right with God? Jesus would say an emphatic yes to that question. We absolutely need to get right with God. Jesus warns mankind over and over again in the Gospels that there are only two possible destinations two ends of human life, two places that we can go when life is over. And when talking about the final destiny of human beings, the Lord Jesus always divided everybody into two groups. You're either in this group or you're in that group. And we saw this many times when we were studying Matthew's gospel together. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad, that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are a few who find it. So there's two gates which put people on two paths. There's always two, only two. The end of one path is destruction. The end of the other path is life. In the parable of the dragnet in Matthew chapter 13, there's a large haul of fish taking up in the story and pulled up onto the beach and the good fish are put into containers and the bad fish are thrown away. There's good fish and bad fish. There's only two groups. The separation is into two groups. And Jesus tells his disciples what this means. There's no mystery to it. So in Matthew 13:49, he says, so it will be at the end of the age the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So there are the righteous and the wicked. Period. Two groups. There are no other categories. Matthew 25. All of humanity who are alive at the second coming are divided into two groups. The sheep and the goats. There are two ends. And of the goats, Jesus says, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Life belongs to those whom the Lord Jesus labels as righteous. So life belongs to them. Who is righteous? That would be obviously the most pressing question of all, right? Who is righteous? Who's going to be a sheep instead of a goat. And the reason Paul gives such a strong warning about the dogs in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3 is because their answer to how can we be right with God is completely wrong. It's completely wrong. Their whole approach and the approach of most people you will meet is, in Paul word, Paul's words in verse 3 and 4, putting confidence in the flesh. That's what human beings do. That's our natural, sinful rebellious tendency to put confidence in ourselves that whatever happens, it's going to be okay because we're all right. We're all right. So what does it mean to put confidence in the flesh? It means to point to your own righteousness. In America, we would just say it like this. I'm a good person. 
that's the same as saying I'm a righteous person before God, because that's what people really believe. I'm a good person, so when I die, nothing bad's going to happen to me. More and more in our country now, I I think people used to say I'm a good person because they actually, you know, did the things a good citizen's supposed to do and were nice to their family and worked hard and all that. But more and more, I think people believe they're righteous if they have the correct opinions. They don't even worry about how they live, they just think, if I have the socially correct opinions that everybody else is telling me I should have, then I am righteous, and they act righteous, self-righteous. I think they learned that in college. Do whatever you want, but have the correct opinions, and you're okay. The dogs that Paul had in mind pointed to be faithful Jews. That's what they were pointing at, their faithfulness to the law of Moses. I keep the commandments. I perform the required rituals. I say the prescribed prayers. The dogs that Paul's talking about, though, were actually breakaway Christians who believed in salvation by Moses, salvation by ritual. And they were putting a requirement of circumcision on Gentile Christians. We talked about that. Making it mandatory for salvation, this physical act. But Paul says, in describing the true Christian, what he calls the true circumcision, in verse 3, he says, we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. So there are many ways human beings put confidence in the flesh. Most people just sort of develop their own standards, and they are pretty lenient with themselves, but if they're all right by those standards, then they feel like they are, they're, they're pretty good to go. And most humans, like that, judge other people by those standards way harsher than they judge themselves. That's human nature as well. And Paul used to be that way. Paul used to live that way. He put confidence in the flesh, in his law-keeping, in his blamelessness, as he says, before um, the expectations of his people, the Pharisees and the, the Jews of that time, the first century Jewish world. He put confidence in the flesh until he met someone wasn't planning to meet him, he just showed up. And that was Jesus, who appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus and told him he was going to become an apostle, basically. This is what he says. Um, so we're in Philippians chapter 3, verse uh, 7. After he met Jesus, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish that I may gain Christ, and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. There it is. That's the other way. That's the narrow way. So Jesus said the righteous will live, the righteous will have eternal life, and Paul is saying that that righteousness has to come from God. It's not something we have in ourselves or can work out in ourselves. It's the righteousness that Christ earned for us. It's not our righteousness. We are not righteous. Psalm 14 is very definitive about that. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's the human condition from which every human needs to be rescued. No one does good, not even one. No, no one is righteous. It really doesn't matter what you think about yourself 
In the end, all that matters is what a just and holy God thinks about you. And he knows that you need the righteousness of Christ. And he sent his son to pay that price for you so that you could have his righteousness. It could be credited to you, counted as yours through faith. That's what Paul's saying. If you're honest with yourself, you know you're not righteous. You're a sinner, you need a savior, and a gracious God provided that savior and is willing to count his righteousness as yours if you submit to him as your Lord. That should be easy because he is Lord, right? You're just doing the right thing to confess Jesus as Lord. His righteousness becomes yours when you do that thing by faith. The only thing that makes it hard is that we are stubborn in our wickedness. But it's the easiest thing in the world to see Jesus and how wonderful he is and say, I want him to be my Lord and I'm going to follow him. So God has made a way of salvation. Paul says in verse 9, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That is how you are made right with God, through faith. So, whoever attacks the message of God providing salvation for all who believe, that person is a dog, in Paul's view. Because they are leading people away from what God has done for our salvation. And what only God can do. We can't save ourselves. And that background is really important for our text today. I know I'm preaching a previous sermon in a way, but that's important for our text today as we move forward. So last time we looked at Paul's counsel to press on in verse 12 through 16. And if you remember, we said there's two paragraphs that start with the word brothers. The first one, starting in verse 13, develops Paul's counsel, his wise counsel to believers to press on toward Christ-likeness. And I think it's clear that by verse 15 and 16, he's, he's worried that some people aren't going to take that advice, that they're looking back. And he's saying, don't look back. Don't look back to what's good and don't look back to what's bad. Press on. Press on to the upward call of God in Christ. And he's worried that some are, are looking back still. But he, he says in verse 16, he pleads with them, well, look, if you don't take that advice I'm giving you to look forward at least live up to the level of spiritual maturity where you are right now. He says, don't slide back. And that's what's so easy to do if you don't press on. It's easy to slide back. So he's afraid. He's afraid for those who don't press on. Why is he afraid? Because there are people out there that are targeting church people, Christian people, who are not pressing on in their faith. They, they, they pick up on it, that weakness, and they work them. They want to seduce them into a false Christianity. And there's different ways that comes about. One is the, the way of the dog, which is legalism, law-keeping, ritual, that kind of thing. But there's another way as well. It was all happening in Paul's time. It's happening today. Verse 17. Here's the new paragraph. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. There's a lot there in verse 17 and 18. Like anyone in ministry, Paul had been shocked to discover that people he thought embraced the truth and knew and loved the Lord, didn't. 
they went away from him. They left him. Just all of a sudden, they went on to something else. And we've seen in our culture, if you follow sort of Christian news, with some regularity lately, we've seen people of a certain notoriety in the Christian subculture world that we have in our country, people going through what has been labeled, it's a new term, I'd never heard it until the last couple of years, but deconversion. Deconversion. That means they've left the faith. Now, some of these people were members of Christian bands, which I'd never heard of, um, but a couple of cases of that happened recently. Personally, I wouldn't be surprised if a Christian singer turned out not to be a Christian, and I just say that because there are zero qualifications for becoming a famous singer, even in the church world. I mean, you don't know those people at all. That's a business, and I know there's a lot of very godly Christians in that Christian music world, but there's also a lot of people that see it as a good way to become famous and to make money. So I wouldn't be surprised about that. But there are also a couple of uh, very well-known, who I'd never heard of, uh, podcasters who are kind of funny guys, a couple of guys, who recently deconverted some sort of comedy duo that used to work for Campus Crusade or clever, funny speakers and stuff like that. But just from listening to their untestimony, their deconversion testimony, it didn't sound to me like they ever had a relationship with Christ. Uh, but they were religious, definitely, and identified as Christians and were very much part of the Christian world. And then they just walked away, both of them, at the same time. More interesting to me are prominent pastors that walk away, that deconvert. Rob Bell was among the more famous ones, and, um, and one I knew personally a little bit was Joshua Harris, who walked away. Rob Bell led as many people astray as possible as a pastor by planting doubt, and then he made his shift to the religion of whatever. I mean, that's really what you should call his religion. It's whatever. So uh, he's very close, personally and religiously, with Oprah Winfrey. And at some point, she gave him a show on her network um, to spout a lot of New Age kind of thinking and things like that. Joshua Harris, he knew the true gospel, and he articulated it for years very well. He wrote books magnifying the great saving work of Christ, and then he just turned away. He just turned away. One interesting thing about deconversions is they never deconvert to anything that the common culture would find offensive. I've noticed that. They always embrace whatever the prevailing views are in the world. They always deconvert by embracing the prominent philosophies and morals of the time. That tells me that deconversion is a pretty shallow thing. But I've never seen anyone deconvert from Jesus and still reject the wicked culture that surrounds us all. They jump right in. They're never independent thinkers, um, or they never display any real wisdom or depth or understanding. It's always, um, they're just going to follow what everybody else is saying nowadays. They feel compelled to fit in, and I guess they just get tired of um, not fitting in with the, the world at large. So there's a spirit in every generation uh, or period of human history the Germans call it the Zeitgeist. Zeit is their word for time, and Geist means spirit or ghost. So it's the spirit of the age, and that's a, it's a wonderful term because every sort of generation or century has sort of a spirit of the age, something that kind of marks its direction and movement. And there's a definite spirit in our age, rebellion against God, against holiness, um, towards uh, groupthink and... Uh, kind of a fascistic uh, control of the culture. It's developing all around us. It's, it's actually pretty shocking. But um, 
it's a mystery to me still, though, that somebody could preach the gospel for years and communicate it with passion and humility and then just not believe it anymore. But it does happen. It does happen. I can see being disillusioned with celebrity Christianity. I can see kind of going off and being all by yourself for a while and mulling your faith or something like that. I mean, Christian culture can be very shallow and money-driven, so I can see that affecting somebody in a negative way. But how could somebody give up on Jesus? I, I guess that's the part I really have a hard time understanding. I can't imagine anything I would trade for Jesus, and nothing even comes close. I've never heard of a deconverted person who's offered something better. In fact, all the deconversion story, people say, well, what do you believe now? It's like, eh, you know, I don't know. I still have a fondness for my old sort of group and things like that. But there's nothing better that they've, they've gone on to or are proclaiming in the place of that except just what everybody else sort of thinks. Nothing. Nothing being said in the world today even approaches the greatness of Jesus Christ and the beauty of the gospel that God would become human and endure incredible agony for us, to save us. Deconversion is a spiritual disaster personally for the person that deconverts, but it's worse, it's worse to still claim Christ and pervert and twist the truth about him. One thing I really appreciated about Joshua Harris is he says, I am, by every definition I know, I am not a Christian anymore. Well, I appreciate that honesty because it's much better that he not be a Christian than that he pretend to be one and lead other people astray. And that's kind of what Paul is moving toward here to talk about people like that. It's a very great sin to attack the gospel from within the church. I can't think of anything worse than that and lead people astray. Now, the dogs attacked the church by adding human works to salvation, self-righteousness. That's why Paul calls them dogs. He uses such a strong word. But there's another kind of evil at work that celebrates and affirms sin within the church. It's an opposite error. And to me, it seemed kind of new, but it's not new because it's right here in the Bible. Verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, have I have often told you and now tell you weeping, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. So I think we have to conclude that Paul knew some of these people. I mean, he's weeping for them. They aren't strangers to him. These are people that he knows. And you notice right away in verse 17, he, two times he uses the word walk. There's two references to that idea of walking. So what do we do when we're walking? We're taking steps, right? We're going down a path. Remember Jesus talked about the narrow path and the broad path. So we're walking. Walking is the course of our life. That's what that's the direction we're going every day. We we take steps through our life every day. And there's two paths here, two ways to walk, just like Jesus had two paths. And these paths are very different. They end in very different places. Two paths, two destinies. So here's the kicker. Both claim to be Christian paths, and that's what's so horrifyingly dangerous about them. Uh, Paul says one path is toward Christ, and he says, follow us. We are pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Follow the pattern you see in us, faithfulness to Christ, faithfulness to the Word of God. He says, follow that path. The other path, he says, is an enemy of the cross of Christ. 
It's an enemy of the cross. It's interesting that he says that. Because when you look at this other way, the cross is abhorrent to them. The idea that Jesus would die, that God would kill his son, shed blood for our sin. What does that mean? What? It's a horrific idea to these people. So just like the dogs of verse 2 are enemies of the cross by denying the sufficiency of Christ to win our salvation, these other people deny the purpose of the cross, which is to reconcile us to God and to change us into holy people. As Paul says in uh, Titus chapter 3, zealous for good works. So the dogs of verse 2, we've said previously, are the Judaizers adding to salvation. The dogs added burdens. But those in verse 18, these enemies of the cross, they just love the world. They love sin. Some commentators call them sensualists, so we'll call them that today. Look how he describes them in verse 19. Whose end is destruction. That's where their path is headed. Whose God is their appetite. Whose glory is in their shame. Who set their minds on earthly things. They don't deny sin in their life. They embrace sin in their life. They wouldn't call it sin. They'd say it doesn't matter. They love it. Jesus told us to deny ourselves, you might recall, but they deny the call to holiness. So this is the cult of affirmation. If it's pleasing to the body, it's good. If it feels good, it is good. Often these folks are referred to as sensualists. Like I said, this doesn't seem to be an odd thing either. It's, it's a movement. It was a movement in the first century. There was, there was a cult of this of the sensualist in the churches. And Paul's dealing with it. He faced it throughout his ministry, it seems. And that makes sense in the ancient world because pagan religion was often built around sensual pleasures, drunkenness, drugs, sexuality, um, all kinds of perversions. I mean, that's what paganism celebrated. Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 28. So that's a different book to different people. He says something very similar, though. He describes certain divisive men in the church. He says, such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's Romans 16, 28. Not slaves of Christ, but of their own appetites. But they deceive with smooth words. They seduce with their words and they are slaves of their desires, their appetites. Peter was aware of that too. In 2 Peter chapter 2, that chapter begins this way. He says, Beware false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. 
So just like Paul does here in Philippians, Peter mentions their destruction. This is serious business we're talking about. So is this a problem today? Yeah, more than ever. There are sensualists now in the church. They abound and they're popular. Christianity has always had its up and downs and periods of weakness and strength and it's never been a golden age of Christianity. It's always been a struggle. But even when people moved away from Scripture, Scripture was always there. And people, even people that got off doctrinally or did strange things, they all pretty much over time have agreed that the morals of the Bible are are true and they promoted those. Almost all off groups still promoted the morals that are taught in Scripture. Um, the standard was there. Even a century ago in many denominations, almost, almost exactly a century ago, a little bit before that, Many denominations um, started to deny the great truths of the faith, the deity of Christ, his virgin birth, um, salvation by grace through faith, the, the atoning work of Christ, the second coming of Christ. They denied all those doctrines. They didn't believe them anymore. Those churches are still around. They're, um, now they're called mainline Protestant churches. Um, they stopped believing in the doctrines, but they didn't change their morality. They still believed in all the same right and wrong things that true Christians believed in because they were in the Bible and that was just part of our culture. But when you cut away the great truths of the faith that undergird all of that morality, when you cut the Bible out as your standard and your anchor for truth, you just cast yourself on the winds of culture as far as everything else goes. So when the culture changes, you got nowhere to go but to go with it. And that's exactly what's happened. It's exactly what's happened. When the culture becomes pornographic and open to promiscuity and all kinds of perverse sexual desires, if there's no biblical foundation, those things get accepted, all of them. And every perversion that has followed the cultural sexual revolution in the 1960s, for example, these people have embraced fully, fully. And the weirder it gets, the more they embrace it. An extreme form of this is what's called progressive Christianity. If somebody says, I'm a progressive Christian, pray for them because they're in a bad place. Progressives love the world progressive. Why do they like that word progressive? Because we're making progress. So the implication is if you follow scripture and are faithful to something old like that, you are regressive, right? But progressive is so modern. It's so with it. With it, that sounds like a 60s thing. You can tell when I grew up. Progressives love the world progressive because it sounds like you're advancing. But those are smooth words. Those are the smooth words Paul talks about in Romans. That's the, the false teacher that Peter talks about in Second Peter. Progressive Christianity would really take a couple of hour lecture to really explain it, but let me read you just sort of the official progressive creed. Now, not all progressive Christians buy this creed, but it's a dominant one. It shows up in churches that are progressive. This is, so this is like their doctrinal statement. I'm just going to read some of the main points. It says, we believe, number one, we believe that following the path of the teacher Jesus can lead to healing and wholeness, a mystical connection to God, and God is in quotes in the actual doctrinal statement, as well as an awareness and experience not of not only the sacred but the oneness and the unity of all life. It's beautiful. It's just silly. That's all. 
Number two, affirm that the teachings of Jesus provide but one of many ways to experience God, the sacredness, the oneness, and the unity of life, and that we can draw from diverse sources of wisdom, including earth, in our spiritual journey. Number three, seek and create community that is inclusive of all people, but not limited to conventional Christians and questioning skeptics, believers and agnostics, those of all races, cultures, and nationalities, those of all sexual orientations and all gender identities, those of all classes and abilities, those historically marginalized, all creatures, and plant life. Now, plant life actually comes under what they call people, so people are plants, or plants are people. Anyway, number uh, here's another one down the way a little bit. Find, find grace in the search for understanding and believe there is more value in questioning with an open mind and an open heart than in absolutes or dogmas. Work toward peace and justice among all people in life on earth. Protect and restore the integrity of our earth and of all creation. Anyway, it just goes on. Those are, those are the main points of it. I read that and, and my mind immediately went to Romans 1 while I was reading it where Paul described humanity's problem as, quote, their foolish heart was darkened. And then he says a little later, he says, they worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's exactly what they're doing, openly doing. So obviously, to someone familiar with Scripture, progressive Christianity is unrecognizable as something Christian. Easily ignored, right? But it's not. More and more, what have been called mainline Protestant churches are embracing many of these ideas. Some of them are all the way down the road on that idea. And most tragically, milder versions of these ideas are slipping into evangelical churches. That's starting to happen more and more frequently. Uh, a really important word in the modern church, and even in the evangelical world, it's, it's becoming more important, is this idea of affirming, affirming. And it's mainly related to all the various sexualities and identities that we see dominating the cultural conversation, the cultural landscape right now. It just gets uh, more and more all the time and stranger all the time. Affirming means, well, what does it mean to affirm someone? You're just fine. You're just fine the way you are. That's what affirming means. Somebody affirms me, they say, uh, I, I feel good about myself. Uh, I have nothing to change. That's, I'm, on the, I'm on the right track, I guess. If you're committed to what God calls an abomination, you're fine. You're fine. No repentance needed. So a church that is affirming, and that's the kind of the key word to look for, is this an affirming church? That's got a very specific meaning to it. It means that you will never be asked to repent of sinful sexual behavior or desires. They'll never ask you to repent of that. Rob Bell, when he left the biblical Jesus for Oprah, immediately became affirming. That was one of his first key things. Joshua Harris announced with his deconversion that he was divorcing his wife, and he immediately started posting pictures on his Facebook page of, of being present and celebrating at a gay pride festival in Montreal. That was the first thing he did to let the world know he was no longer a Christian. It's so much easier to follow the culture than Scripture. 
it's so much easier. And churches that claim to be evangelical, that still preach something like the gospel, are starting to move in this direction. Some start by being welcoming, welcoming instead of affirming. I'm all for being welcoming to everybody. But the problem is, when they start talking that way, they don't affirm, but they stop talking about the sin. They won't preach the sin. Some very prominent evangelicals have said they will not preach about certain things that are culturally acceptable. They won't affirm it, but everybody's welcome and they won't talk about it. That's literally denying salvation to people that need to repent of their sin and embrace Jesus Christ. They welcome all. They stay silent. I read an article by a, a homosexual activist who, who went to a welcoming but not affirming church. This was in the Advocate magazine. That's the top gay magazine. Um, and he talked to the pastor. So he, so he goes to a welcoming church, but he doesn't know what that's all about yet. So he talks to the pastor, and he describes their conversation like this. He says, You should always feel welcome, the pastor said, as I wiped away my tears. But I can't say we are affirming. He assured me I would not hear condemnation and told me he would love to learn more and promised he would respond to any problems I had. He also clarified that the church does not condone conversion therapy. I thanked him for the clarity and tried to get out of the church before I would start crying again. I've had time to process this afternoon. I ate Easter dinner with friends and smiled thinking about my community I built around me. I made up my mind. I have a new mission field. My parents were missionaries, and we traveled the globe spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. I'm going to spread the good news of affirmation in that church every Sunday. That's his commitment. He will probably succeed because the pastor assured him he would never sense condemnation there. This sort of thing is why Paul weeps because he knew people in the church that he loved that went that way. Righteous people weep when people go astray. Recently, our elders were accused by someone under corrective discipline of acting out of emotion when the elders expressed grief over that person's sin. Oh, what are you grieving about? You're acting out of emotion. Ah, see, that's how the sinner rationalizes it. They're just being emotional. But no, not just being emotional. You can be grieved and be thoughtful and careful and biblical in all that you do and in all the actions that you take. Grief is a mark of love. If you can see somebody going into sin and not grieve, you have no love in your heart. How sad it would be if the elders of our church did not grieve like Paul did. But let's get back to this point here. You, you know what you don't find in the gospel, in the Bible? When you read the Bible and you talk, it talks about the gospel, you know what you, word you never find there? Affirmation. Affirmation. It's not part of it. A lady named Katie Faust uh, wrote an excellent article right after Joshua Harris abandoned the Lord in, in 2019. And she wrote, um, Progressive Christians are under the wrong impression 
that ours is a gospel of affirmation. The idea that God affirms everything we think and say and do and want. This misconceived notion of the gospel believes that for God to genuinely love us, he has to love everything about us. We have a God who loves us enough to accept us as we are. That same God loves us enough to not leave us as he found us. Indeed, our gospel is not one of affirmation. It is the gospel of transformation. The transformation begins when, judicially, Christ substitutes himself for us in God's cosmic ledger. His atoning sacrifice kicks off the process of us mortals being transformed into the likeness of God's own Son. Sometimes that's an about-face in which we are instantly freed from our former temptations. More often, God slowly pries our fingers one by one off a particular brand of besetting sin. I couldn't say it any better than she did, so I read that. We affirm God loves sinners enough to die a cruel death for them, to save them, not affirm them. So why do we grieve those who walk away from that salvation? Why does Paul weep? Because the lie of affirmation leads to destruction. Verse 18 again, and then into 19. They are enemies of the cross of Christ, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, and who set their minds on earthly things. Can you see how non-affirming the Apostle Paul is here? They are enemies of the cross because they deny the purpose of the cross, which is transformation. Their end is destruction because they won't repent. And Paul is so helpful here by identifying the internal workings of the heart of these people. There's three key things he, he, he mentions that characterizes where their hearts are. Their God is what their hungers are. That's what they actually worship, no matter what they say. What they crave is more important than what God commands them to do. So they'll feast on sin, declaring that it's not sin at all. Their glory, he says, is their shame. They boast and celebrate what is shameful. That's what that word glory means, to boast about. Jesus said, deny yourself and take up your cross. There's no affirmation there, except about him. The sensualist does not deny self. The sensualist indulges self. Their minds are set where? Not on spiritual things, but earthly things. This life is more important than what is coming. And you can see that in the declaration of the progressive Christian doctrinal statement. There's nothing future-looking. There's nothing about eternal glory with Christ. There's nothing honoring him that way. It's all about my desires now. So Paul weeps because they do profess in some way to believe in Jesus, but they just use his name to approve of their sin. They abuse his love, which is a transformational love, by refusing to be transformed. They despise him as a redeemer from sin. They twist love into an affirmation of the very things he died for. So this is very different from the believer 
whose heart God has awakened to the truth. And we see that person in verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with his with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has to subject all things to himself. Boy, that's the best news I've ever heard. I cannot wait. You see right away the contrast with the sensualist described in verse 19 here? We don't belong here. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're just passing through this world. That's our identity. We are citizens of heaven, not of earth. We're waiting for a Savior, a deliverer from sin. That Savior is our Lord. He's a Lord to be obeyed. So it's so interesting that in progressive Christian literature, in all of their literature that I've ever seen and their testimonies, Christ is never called Lord. He's just Jesus. He's an example of love, and that's all he is. That's not the Jesus that Paul is presenting, however, He has all power, power to subject all things to himself, and he will do that. And thankfully, part of that subjecting all things to himself includes our weak, fallen, failing human nature, our fallen bodies, our lowly bodies. Thank God. Our bodies will be conformed to the body of his glory, Paul says. See that use of the word glory? What are the sensualists glory in? Their shame verse 19 says. The true disciple is pressing on to be conformed with the body of his glory. His glory. That is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, as Paul says in verse 14. So never get entangled in things that cannot last. Never choose the creation over the creator. Never trade gold for sand, you know? No earthly pleasure, which always leaves more hunger and eventually has to die. No earthly pleasure ever begins to compare with a perfect Savior like Jesus. So be honest. You are not righteous in yourself. Don't ask for affirmation of sin. You are a sinner and your only only hope of salvation is the Savior that God sent into the world. How can you know? God made it really easy. Jesus is the wisest and best person that ever lived. So just say, who's the best person there is? Isn't it odd that the best and greatest person who ever lived would be proclaimed to be the Son of God who came to die for your sins? That's how you know. Just embrace him. That's your guide. Love Jesus and let self and the world go. Let's pray. Merciful Father, we, we know well the excellence of your son, Jesus. We know the Bible speaks the truth that we are not righteous. We deserve nothing from you, and yet you offer us salvation in Christ, freely. We look forward to the day when he exercises his power to subject all things to himself. Jesus is worthy. 
to do whatever he wills, because it will be holy and just and good whatever he chooses. Lord, we confess his lordship over all creation, including ourselves, and we rejoice in his mercy to sinners like us. Glorify yourself in us, we ask in his name. Amen. I want to mention, just as we kind of close out, progressive Christianity is becoming a pretty strong force in America. Last year, we showed um, a film called American Gospel, Christ Alone, a really excellent documentary about a lot of false gospels that are in our country right now, and progressive Christianity wasn't really addressed in that. So they came out with a new documentary. It's called um, Christ Alone, American Gospel, Christ Crucified. Yeah, that's the new name. American Gospel Christ Crucified. It's excellent, and most of it deals with progressive Christianity. I have copies. If somebody wants to see that, be happy to share it. We'll probably share it whenever we're allowed to meet together again in big groups, all tightly packed. We'll probably show it someday at church. But um, for now, if you want to see it, I'd love to share it with you. It's uh, I've got several copies, okay? God bless you, and we'll see you next time.